Welcome everyone. We're very glad to have you joining us for chapel today. Um, here in this time of uncertainty and changing and sort of making do and appearing where and when we can. Um, you know, I think oftentimes we get upset about the advent of technology in our lives, but in situations like this, it's really a great blessing. We can still continue to gather and have our time to hear the word and know that we are sharing a moment in time, even if we're not sharing that moment technically in the same space, we are inhabiting this moment together. It's really a great gift. Um, and another great gift was the reading that Kimberly just did for us. Um, really always grateful when folks share the word at Asbury because you can tell when they deliver, it's something that's very deeply rooted in them and it comes out like wellsprings of water, like gushing faucets of God's truth and word. It's it's just great every single time we hear it. Um, <clears throat> and this passage from Luke is, I think it's one of those that I never thought I would really want to talk about because it's a very common passage. A lots of things um, that have been appropriated with this passage of the Good Samaritan. Um, the thing that made me think about it recently was not ironic, uh, not unusual for people who have children. I was listening to an interaction with my kids over the dinner table. Um, I have these two kids, they're fantastic. They've been really great friends for most of their lives until they hit kind of preteen, teenage years. And now, as is more common, um, very often we sit down together. You know, it's been the end of a long day. We've all been very busy. I'm looking forward to this family gathering. Let's sit down over a meal. Let's talk about our day. Let's affirm one another. And of course, that's usually not the way it's starting to play out. Um, you know, one person will say something and then the other one says, that's so stupid, or wow, that was really smart, or gee, share some more of your wisdom with us. And they start to do this thing back and forth. And I will say, now y'all, let's redirect, let's be positive. Um, even in this small room, there's folks nodding. It's, it's amazing what happens. Um, and so then they do another little thing and I'm like, y'all, let's be kind. Don't be mean, don't say unkind things. And inevitably, inevitably, one or the other of them will look at me wide-eyed in innocence and say, well, but all I said was, all I said was, gee, you were so wise. I mean, that's not a mean thing to say. And then I have to unpack, well, you know, you did it with the eye roll and the scuffle and the sarcastic tone. And then they begin to backtrack and they begin to explain and do whatnot. And after about 15 minutes of this, I find myself saying, why can't you spend as much time and energy um, loving each other well and being nice as you do trying to justify being mean? <laughs> it's like the same thing happens every night. Um, and I just look at them and I say, why don't you, you know, you're so smart. You have so much emotional intelligence. Why don't you use your powers for good instead of ill? Um, but this is the stage that we're in, right? And the thing that keeps most parents at this point from despair is knowing that this is, it's pretty typical for kids that are 10, 15, these kind of ranges in between. You know, we're in the midst of learning how to love one another well, how to um, become with our words, and also how to be morally responsible and morally integrated human beings. Um, and hopefully, as our kids grow, we begin to understand, you know, it, it's not really fair to say, I said something nice, but in a mean tone of voice and try to make all these adjustments and make all these moral compromises and arguments. Hopefully, 
um, as we grow, we move into this place where we want to love well and love genuinely. And we spend more energy trying to love well than trying to disobey in a clever manner. And as I thought about the ways in which I use the word justify with my kids, how they're always trying to justify um, the ways in which they're being sneaky with each other. I thought about the times in scripture when this word is uh, brought out in significant ways. And it's an interesting word because it's, it's tied in to our concept of justification, which is an extraordinarily central Christian concept. Um, but the fact that it's tied up in these different ways, both positive and negative, both life-giving and life-narrowing, um, is something that's interesting, especially in this passage. So we've got in Luke 10, the passage that we call the Good Samaritan, Peril of the Good Samaritan. Um, the, in the context, so this, this, um, this parable comes out at a really interesting point in, Mark, in Luke's gospel. So basically, um, in his commentary on the gospel of Luke, Joel Green does a beautiful job of outlining how the gospel of Luke is sort of this extended um, journey and discussion and series of narratives about what it means to experience salvation. It's sort of the study in soteriology, which is a very fancy academic way of saying, it's looking at what does salvation mean? What does it look like? Um, how does Jesus bring it to us? How do we receive it? How do we participate in it? What does our life look like when we are interacting in the fullness of it? And so this is what's happening in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and to put a finer point on it, when he's talking about people who are in participating in the kingdom and in the people of God, he wants to know what discipleship looks like. Sort of the idea of discipleship as living fully, daily, intentionally into this life of salvation. And he's been spending a lot of time up to this point in Luke, Jesus has, talking about what discipleship means. And he has these two very constant things. Um, it is about hearing, and doing the word of God as you experience it. Um, as Joel points out in his commentary, he says, it's in the doing that the hearing of the word is authenticated. It's not enough just to hear, but as we do, we authenticate the reality of its interaction with us. Um, true discipleship is marked by those who not only hear the word of God, but embody it, who live it out in their bodies, in their interactions in their words and deeds. Um, and this idea of living things out and embodying them um, is very much a central portion of this parable. So the parable, it's interesting, it's one of the, probably one of the best known parables, both in the Christian tradition and also in common culture, um, the contemporary culture. I was watching this summer a few reruns of Seinfeld, which is sort of this, you know, cultural classic not rooted in the Christian story in any way. And what's so fascinating is that the series finale at the end of the ninth season, it wraps up with these four folks from Seinfeld being held in the small New England town on trial for violating what is called a Good Samaritan law. So these guys come into town and witness somebody being robbed and carjacked and being their snarky selves, they're filming and they're making comments. And the, the series finale, wraps up with this trial saying that they should have interceded and done something to help someone who's being robbed. Um, the, the actual phrasing of it was, 
Um, we've made it a crime, says the prosecutor in the story, to ignore a fellow human being in trouble. So this amazing parable has made its way all the way down to a pivotal moment in Seinfeld. So obviously, folks know what this is. Um, but there's a lot in back of the story that really bears examining. Um, so the story occurs when Jesus has sent out the 70. He is on his way to Jerusalem, to um, ultimately to the cross and the tomb. He has set his face towards Jerusalem, this sense of a very austere, focused, intentional movement towards his fulfillment on the cross. And in preparation for this, he sent the 70, and they are um, preceding him, they are doing miracles, they're um, witnessing to him, witnessing about him, witnessing to the presence that he's going to be coming. And they come back and they're really excited. They've had this amazing, these amazing experiences. They say, wow, demons even, um, demons even uh, obeyed us. All these amazing things are happening. And Jesus says, you know, it's about who is seeing and who is hearing. Um, it's not just about uh, where I'm going. It's not just about uh, the miracles that are being done. But of all these folks, there are folks who, who see and hear. And it doesn't always have to do with who we think is going to be doing the seeing and hearing. Um, he describes in really vivid categories, Jesus does, about the people to whom God has decided to reveal himself. Um, it's not that anybody's excluded, but it's not going to automatically go to the folks we think be the first in line to get the good news. Um, he says, you know, God in his good glory and good wisdom has revealed, has hidden it from those that we consider to be wise or powerful. Um, and he's revealed to little children who are the nobodies. Um, in the midst of this turning around of the power and honor system of the society, in the midst of this, this Jewish lawyer steps forward. And by that, um, there's this equal opportunity. He could have been um, a priest who also uh, adjudicated in matters of Jewish law, um, you know, when he wasn't doing his ceremonial duties. Um, he was someone who was extremely knowledgeable in the Jewish law, which was the structure and skeleton that um, gave shape and form and content and direction to the Jewish people. And he steps forward, and you can kind of see him. He's, he's like, okay, so hey, teacher, um, he kind of comes in and, and interrupts in a, in a dialogue that is not necessarily private because Jesus is teaching his 70 disciples in a public space, but he's not really talking to everybody. He's kind of talking to his folks. And this guy comes up from the side and says, <clears throat> so if I could interrupt for a second, <laughs> teacher, use the term of respect, and he says, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you're a teacher of the Jewish law. Um, you've read the law, as have I. Um, tell me, what do you read there? And he's not just talking about the words that are read there. It's not just about, um, you know, recite back to me what the law says. The, the gloss in there, it's implied is, you know, what does this say to you? When you read this, what are you hearing? What do you see? It's this echo back to this idea of not just encountering the reality of Jesus, but who is it that's going to see and hear the truth? And so Jesus, with this one shift, he, um, 
So he kind of answers a question with a question and says, you, not, you know as well as I know what is written in these laws. Tell me what it means to you. Or what do you think it's saying, basically, is what he's saying to him. And so the lawyer says, okay. He gives what you know might be perceived as a safe answer, one of the safest answers. The lawyer says, yeah, the law says love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus says, you got it in one, <laughs> you know, do this and you shall have eternal life. So he's given this perfect answer. Jesus says, bingo. You would think the exchange would be done, but the lawyer would like to um, get a little more clarification. And so he says, looking to test you this, he says, so who's my neighbor exactly? Like if you could clarify that, that would be awesome just so I will, will know as I move forward. Um, in his, mess, in his uh, translation of the Bible, the message, Eugene Peterson phrases this as the Jewish lawyer looking for a loophole says to Jesus, um, and who is my neighbor exactly? Like who does this cover? Um, now, if the lawyer had been listening earlier on in the book of Luke, when Jesus broke down the distinctions in the, Sort of in Matthew with the Sermon on the Mount and Luke with the Sermon on the Plain, but some very similar teachings. And in that, Jesus breaks down this idea that there's a sharp distinction, both in identity and in obligation, between enemy and friend. He breaks this down and says, you know, everybody loves their friends. Pagans do it. I mean, that's just sort of your standard baseline, you know, human interaction. But I tell you, love your enemies, bless them. Um, he breaks this distinction down in an extremely strong way. If the lawyer had been paying attention to that, he might not have moved forward into this um, small but incisive question about distinctions. He might not have wanted to introduce the idea of distinctions at all, but he apparently was not there or forgot about that. And so he says, if you could just let me know who's in and who's out, that would be great. And that way I'll know what I need to do and what I don't need to do. Um, and so, the dialogue between these guys is characterized by one verb, verb in particular, and that's the verb do. You know, the, the teacher approaches and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, they talk about what the book says. Jesus says, do this and you'll live. And he says, well, but you know, who am I supposed to do this to exactly? And so the parable centers around two things in particular. One is identity and one is action. And it's these two things that help the reader and start pointing us towards the message of who and what it is to be a disciple and following and living out salvation of the gospel of Luke. Um, what is it that our identity and our action say about how the law binds us and opens us and, and exposes us to what God, what God is calling us to do? So the first with identity, because that's where, that's where the lawyer's question starts. He wants to know who's the neighbor. So he'd kind of like to know if he could make some lists. You know, these guys are neighbors, these folks aren't neighbors, and I'll have half the work to do, maybe even a third, depending on the list that Jesus gives him. Um, so when Jesus starts to tell a parable, he, he doesn't really answer the question that the lawyer's asking outright. As Jesus wants to do, he frames it in a way that points the lawyer and points the disciples and points us 
towards the answer we really need to hear. Um, so just to begin with, the identity of the injured man is never revealed. Jesus does not seem to think that's important. It just says a certain person, a certain man is going along the road and is set upon by robbers. So um, automatically Jesus has shifted this narrative because um, the lawyer wants to know who's the guy that was beaten up because, you know, depending on who he is, maybe I'll help him, maybe I won't. And Jesus says, forget about that, forget about that. This guy is there. Now, here are three folks that come by. Their identity is incredibly important. That is laid out very carefully. Um, the first is the priest. The second is a Levite. Both of these folks um, had identity and roles that were wrapped up in who they were in the people of Israel and the Jewish culture. They have what was called a scribe status. They were who they were based on being born into the families that carried forward these roles. They hadn't done anything to earn it. Um, they had been born into this group, and that's fun. That's how things were laid out. But because of this, the priests and the Levites began to think, well, because I've been designated as a holy person, because I have a special relationship with the temple, because I have a huge status in this community that's centered around temple and temple cleanliness, then I must be the one who, det who determines what's holy and what's not. Um, if I do it, because I'm a holy person, things must be okay. So these folks who have come by, they, they not only decide not to help, but they, they pass to the other side of the road. And we've all done that in some ways, right? You know, you're somewhere and you see maybe someone asking for money up ahead on the sidewalk and you think, I really don't want to have to deal with this or rather not look this person in the eye. You find a reason to cross the street, maybe go to another store. Um, or if you see somebody you're embarrassed to see or someone you don't want to chat with, you might edge out of the way. So these folks make it a point to distance themselves from the person who is in need. Um, the Samaritan, on the other hand, doesn't have any kind of identity that would, that would cement Jesus' argument in any way. In fact, bringing up the Samaritan's identity really is going to um, kind of put a kink into Jesus' argument because his identity is not a good one. Um, Samaritans weren't considered foreign in this way that, that Gentiles were, but they were still fairly other. Um, you know, they believed the wrong things theologically, they worshipped the wrong place, there was a lot of bad blood. Um, they were considered to be um, suspect, dirty. They were not the folks who were going to be seen as being the guy who comes out on top. If you want to have a hero that comes into a story, you're not going to pick this one. You know, if you want to rewrite the parable in a, in a 21st century take, you might say, you know, the, the bishop comes along, or maybe the chancellor of the university, or um, maybe the senator, or even the social worker. Like you can find all sorts of things where status might be assumed. Um, and then you have someone coming along who maybe he's a hip-hop artist, you know? Maybe he is an atheist tattooed. Maybe he is a local drug dealer. Like, we don't know. There are certain ways that folks can come along and someone's coming along that is going to come out um, on top. Not because of who they are, good or bad, but because it depends. They're going to come forward and respond to the situation that God puts in front of them in a way that's going to not just be shaped by their identity, but reveal what their identity is. So as religious professionals, the priest and the Levite 
are used to um, dealing with the situation however they felt life was ceremonially pure. And then they would say, well, folks are not going to look down on me for this because I, I'm a priest, they'll think. I'm one of the holiest folks in Jewish law. Um, if I choose to avoid this person who might be sick, might be a drain on my finances, he might be dead, and so that's going to be a bunch of hassle. Um, if I choose to avoid him, no one will blame me. And the Levite says the same thing. Um, you know, I may have some things I'm going to. I've got some business going on. I really cannot be bothered by this person who has no claim on me. Um, and kind of the corollary to this is this idea that um, if we perceive ourselves as being good people, nice people, religious people, um, acceptable people, um, popular people, folks with status in a society, um, we tend to think that whatever choice we make is going to be okay because we are good. And so we think, well, you know, I'm a nice, I'm a nice guy. I'm not a bad guy. I didn't go beat him up. Um, I didn't do anything to harm that person, but I don't owe them anything. And so in the middle of this, in the middle of this, um, of this uh, situation, Jesus brings a Samaritan who's coming along. He's probably just a merchant. He's nobody special. And he looks over and sees this person who's languishing in the road. And there's no sort of rational way that the Samaritan decides to help. The Samaritan does not sit and think out, well, maybe it's a Samaritan, maybe I should help, or maybe it's a Jew and they're jerks and we don't like to help them. He doesn't do any of this. What he does is he looked over and he's moved with compassion. It's a very deep, internal, um, almost a visceral movement within him. And so here are the folks who, by virtue of their identity and their preferred status, should be the ones who are doing the right thing, who are embodying the love of God. Um, and they don't. And so I think the lawyer expects Jesus to turn around and say, well, you know, they didn't need to help this guy. They ha he had no claim on them. The Samaritan moves forward and says, there's somebody dying. And he's moved with compassion. And he drops what he's doing and he steps forward and he cares for the person who needs care. Um, what Jesus is showing us here is it's not, it's not our identity that makes our behavior sanctified or commendable or even acceptable. It's our active, faithful, faith-filled response to the immediate, often inconvenient invitations to participate in the work of God that occur right in front of us, that are thrown into our way as we are literally on the road. These are the things that reveal our identity in the story which God is writing. We do not bring our identity in and then decide who needs help. We respond, and thus our identity as participants in the work of God is revealed. Um, this is a very difficult thing, uh, not just for Christians, often for American Christians. Um, this popular concept that our um, that our country and our constitution is based on is called negative rights, negative liberties. We have the right not to have to do things that are damaging to us, not to have to do things that we are not obligated to do. Um, this can serve really well in a society that's pluralistic, but as Christians, it falls far short of the mark. Um, as Christians, we are called to do much, much, much more than simply avoid doing evil to others. This we share not only with Jesus, but with John Wesley, who said, you know, avoid doing harm and do good in as many ways possible. These are not the same. 
And once they recognize that they're not the same, and this parable explicitly shows how they are not the same. Because the priest and the Levite did not do anything to actively harm the man. They didn't do anything at all. The Samaritan, instead of retreating into an idea of not being bound by obligation to help, instead of retreating into the safety of shelter and convenience, the Samaritan advances, he virtually charges forward to participate in caring for the other that God has called him to do. Um, and that's why the lawyer's question is so important. The purpose of it and the intention. The original question the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? Can you tell me who I actually have to love as myself? Um, in this question, the lawyer is not seeking with this clarification to learn how to love more fully. He is not seeking to learn how to love better. What he wants to do is be given permission to love more narrowly. He wants to be given permission by Jesus to bring the circle closer and tighter and to care for fewer people and still remain within the scope of the kingdom of God, which is really fascinating considering that he begins his answer to Jesus with this amazingly powerful verse in the Shema. You know, we we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. This verse repeats the word love with all of ourselves four times. And yet the first thing that he does after that is try to start circumscribing who he needs to love on the outside. He may be able to repeat the Shema back to Jesus, but he has not heard it. He has not seen what the words mean when he's read them. Um, to move from loving with all of oneself to how little do I have to do and not make God angry indicates that he is not understanding what the salvation story of the Gospel of Luke is all about. Um, and the fact that this is a lawyer is also really significant. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's interesting that the words justify and justification are so closely linked. Um, you know, it's a theological category, justification is, but it's also a legal one. And that's not insignificant. You know, what the, what the lawyer is trying to do here is find a loophole, find an acceptable reason to not do good. Um, and with all of the beauty that it's brought to the Christian tradition to our lives, you know, the, the struggle that Protestantism has had between faith and works and this idea of justification by faith, with their emphasis on this legal aspect of atonement, it's not really any wonder that we struggle with legalism in the way we live out our, our, our saved lives. Both, on both sides of the equation, you know, I realized as I was reading through this that being raised in the evangelical tradition and, and being discipled in that, you know, when I've heard the word legalism, you always think, well, it's about working, you know, earning God's love. It's about trying to do works righteousness and working and earning and working and earning. But, you know, legalism has the other side of the coin. Um, just as much as we can try um, to say to ourselves, how much do I have to do to earn God's salvation to ensure that God loves me? That's one side of it. Just as often and just as problematic are the times when we retreat into a legalistic definition and definition of safety and distance. What we ask is, how little do I really have to do to, and can still be okay with God? Who can I ignore and still inherit eternal life? That was the lawyer's question. And what we might ask is, well, do we really have to help the poor? Um, is our salvation really in the balance with this? You know, God did say that, that uh, Jesus did say that the rich could go, to the, could, could go to heaven 
even if it was harder than a camel getting through the eye of the needle. Well, obviously it, it must be possible. So that's our guarantee. We can step forward into that. Um, we don't need to worry about giving to the, we don't need to worry about our riches or giving to the poor because Jesus said all things are possible with God. See, he said it, I'm gonna hold him to it. It's almost like when folks go to court and maybe they are guilty of something, but there was a problem in the legal, in the, in the arrest, there was a problem with the evidence, there was a problem in some technical legal way. And to serve the larger issue of, of legal safety, um, folks are released on a technicality. And I think that's what we want sometimes. We want to be able to get out on a technicality. And we recognize why those things are important in the legal system to serve in one sense, the larger aspect of the integrity of the whole law process. But we're never quite, um, it certainly doesn't leave us with a sense of the, the feeling that justice was done. Um, you know, if, if we're only getting out on technicalities, then we really have not served justice fully. And I think that's what we try to do as Christians sometimes. We want to try to get these technical ways to avoid doing what the spirit of God in compassion and mercy and overflowing love for the other is calling us to, um, recklessly even, uh, far beyond the bounds of obligation or what's just acceptable. You know, another beautiful example of this is later on in the uh, book of Luke, which is the, the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the prodigal son goes and wastes all this money, shames his father, and then comes back and really just wants a very technical, legal, um, sort of uh, strained relationship. The father wants everything. The father wants full restoration of everything. Um, the father does not just want to give what's obligatory, what's acceptable. He wants full restoration, full love. The older brother does not. He wants, he's like, that. this guy really shamed you. He wasted all this money. He, he deserves nothing and he should be grateful for any little scrap you give him. Um, he chooses bitterness over full restoration. And this is not what God would have for us. Um, God doesn't want us to approach the opportunities for discipleship with begrudging, um, penny-pinching, counting, um, thriftiness and miserliness. What God wants is for us to consistently, constantly, overwhelmingly, look for those opportunities where we can make a difference, where we can participate actively in the discipleship of God, participate in the living out of our salvation, of restoration, of healing. Um, this is, these are the things that God wants from us. The same that, that the father and the prodigal son wanted for both of his sons. He wanted the fullness of family and love and restored relationship. This is what God calls us into as well. So as we come to the end of the dialogue, um, Jesus concludes his, um, his talk with the lawyer with a question of his own, um, but it's altogether different in focus. So Jesus says to him, um, you know, the lawyer begins the, the, the parable by, or proceeds the parable by saying, so which of these guys is my neighbor? And Jesus completely shifts the focus of the question and says, now which of these guys was the neighbor? Who acted in a way that the designation of neighbor appropriately applies to him? And the lawyer hears it. The lawyer knows how the shift, that the shift has happened. He knows that this shift in focus and this reorienting of priorities has happened. 
And he has heard the answer because he gives the answer back to Jesus. He says, yeah, it was the one who showed mercy. Again, back here to do, to action. He recognizes that the, the, the center of the issue is not whose identity makes them holy, but whose actions reveal their participation in the kingdom. Um, the lawyers follow Jesus' shift in focus. He's grasped the implications, at least in theory he has. He knows the right answer to give, just like he knew the verse to share in the Shema. The question is, has he understood it more fully? Has he understood it at a deep level? Has he heard and seen in the way that Jesus described earlier in the Gospel of Luke? Um, and the thing is, we don't know. The Gospel does not answer that question for us. In the same way that the Gospel doesn't answer what happens to the people who came to Jesus and said, I really want to follow you, but I got to bury my dad in six months. Could you, you know, could, could you book me a seat and I'll show up later? Or, you know, I'd really like to do this, but let me go back and, and wrap up some stuff with the family. We don't know what those folks did when Jesus said to them, the time is now, come on now. Um, we don't know what happened with the elder brother and the prodigal son. What we do know is the father comes outside and pleads with them and says, please come in. You are beloved. He is beloved. Let's be beloved together. And we don't know what the elder brother does. Um, we just don't know. Um, and so we don't know what the lawyer decides to do either. In this sense, um, we realize that while these stories, um, while the resolution is really important, um, in some ways, the resolution we have to look for is within ourselves. It's in our communities and our own selves and our churches. Um, it's not the response of the folks in scripture that God placed before us today, it's our own. Um, it's a task of us who read and listen, who preach, who study, who gather. It is our task to provide the response um, that we are not provided in these parables. It is our task to provide a response to figure out how we are going to embody um, a response and participation in the discipleship of God. Um, what will we embody? Will we seek to, to shrink our circle? Will we seek to know how little we can do and not have God take away our eternal life? Will we seek to, um, to nitpick and pull back and give as little as we can to be miserly? Or will we be reckless with love? Will we move forward in ways that um, maybe don't make sense to the wise, but make sense to the open-heartedness of little children? Um, Jesus ends up answering a question that the lawyer didn't ask, but the question he answers is the only one that really matters. The question is not, who are they? The real question is, who are we? And that's the one that Jesus wants us to think on. Um, you know, as, as I said before, as a mother, I found myself asking, why can't my kids invest as much energy and thought and passion into loving each other well as they do um, in finding ways to pester each other without getting punished <laughs> in these technically allowable ways? Um, and as I pray over them and live with them, I, I look forward to the day that they mature out of that and grow into a deeper love. Um, because what they're doing, focusing on whether they're technically disobeyed or not, you know, I'm not going to say it's necessarily sinful in a core way. It's appropriate to their age, but it's childish. It's undeniably childish and they're children. And as they grow, I hope they leave behind their childish ways. Um, this focusing solely on what we need to do on the technical terms of our salvation, um, 
it's childish. It has nothing in it of the full, mature, complete salvation that Jesus commends to us. In Matthew 5, where he calls us to be perfect, to be mature and complete, as our Father in heaven is complete in love. Um, and it doesn't reflect the glorious possibilities of Christian perfection that Wesley commends to us over and over throughout his life, throughout his ministry. Um, it, is un, it is unfinished, it is immature. And immaturity is not inherently sinful. Um, it's not fully sanctified in the way that stands before us as a real possibility. Um, it's not where God wants us to live. It's not where he wants us to stop and hide. Um, it's not a good witness to the good news that Jesus the Christ has brought to us. It's not a good witness to the regenerative power of his blood that he freely shed for us or the power of the spirit that resides in us. Um, and I have no idea if this is the most or least important consideration, but I found myself writing it down anyway. Um, it does not make God happy. God wants more for us. And I know when I look out at my dinner table and see my children fighting, and I think, I wish we were enjoying each other instead. Um, I still love them deeply and tremendously, and my commitment is still there fully. But I'll admit it, I wish we were being happy. It does, I wish we were enjoying one another. Um, how does it make God feel to look out at us and see us um, loving less, justifying our fear, justifying our selfishness, justifying our apathy? Um, how is it that we can step forward into something that's a lot bigger, um, that's full of the full life that God calls us to, um, without the certainties, without the safeties, but with all the full possibilities of um, the future he's opening up to us. Um, so what will we, as people on the road, what will we embody in the choices we face today?